Hello, bonjour, and tantse. I'm Paula Simons. Welcome to the fourth season of Alberta Unbound. When Brandy Morin's new memoir, Our Voice of Fire, was published this August, it became an instant Canadian bestseller. And the book, subtitled A Memoir of a Warrior Rising, has stayed on the national bestseller lists ever since. Small wonder. It is a fierce, propulsive read. The gripping story of Brandy Morin's journey from Alberta's foster care system through Alberta's criminal justice system to her triumphant emergence as an award-winning journalist whose reporting has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, The Guardian, The National Observer, and The Toronto Star, and who has also been a correspondent with the CBC, APTN, and now with Al Jazeera. Born and raised in Treaty 6 territory, Brandy Morin draws on her Cree, Iroquois, and French-Canadian roots to tell the stories no one else is telling in ways no one else is telling them. And I am delighted to begin this new season of Alberta Unbound with our two-part conversation. I'm honored to be here, Paula. Taniki, thank you for having me. Well, Tanse, um, I wanted to start by talking about your family's extraordinarily deep roots in this province and talking about your grandmother's family. She was part of the Michelle Band. And mm -hmm. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that First Nation and its history and your family connection to it. Yes, absolutely. So the Michelle um, First Nation was given a tract of land made into a reserve um, in the late 1800s after our first ancestor established the Michelle family. He was he came from Ganawage, so he was Mohawk, and he came over to Alberta as a, a fur trader, a trapper, and he worked for Hudson Bay and Northwest companies and loved it over here and ended up intermarrying with the Cree and fathered a whole legacy. And when Alberta was uh, being colonized, uh, our people were herded onto this area. And so my great grandfather, <laughs> Times Four, who uh, was the head of the Michelle Band, his, he was known as Caraquante, which translates to the Sun Traveler. And he was known as Chief Louis Callahu, which that's what they changed his name to be in English. And his son, Michelle Callahu, signed an adhesion to Treaty 6 and uh, established the Michelle Band. Now, that band flourished and did very well. The, the land was located just west of St. Albert in the Sturgeon and Villeneuve areas. And Canada was looking into enfranchisement you know, in the early 1920s and thought that Mich the Michelle people would be a good example of that. So from what I understand, the government offered the Michelle various different initiatives, such as, um, you know, providing them with uh, farming equipment and um, offering them full uh, citizenship into Canada, telling them that they wouldn't have to send their children to residential schools if they, you know, enfranchised, uh, totally assimilated. 
And it was corruptly orchestrated and our band was completely enfranchised by, I believe it was 1958. And our people uh, lost our lands and our lands were subsequently sold off to, um, you know, settler farmers for um, really cheap prices. And our people were scattered all over the place. And so um, we do now have uh, still an elected chief and council system, although we are not fully recognized as a band uh, by the government of Canada. Our people have been in, you know, negotiations and in the courts with the governments for oh, 30, 40 years now, still waiting for that, you know, that recognition. Many members did get their treaty rights back individually as time went on. We are recognized by the Treaty Six First Nations and other uh treaty members uh, from around the province. But we are still here. And I grew up on the territories of my ancestors, not on reserve, but in Parkland County. Isn't that extraordinary? So at the time, I'm sure there were some people who saw this as visionary and even progressive, right? To enfranchise people, to give them the vote, to help them, you know, join the great Canadian community. But what did that assimilation and that cutting off of a sense of, you know, Indigenous identity grounded in the land. Yeah. What, what was the impact of that on your family? Yeah, I mean, our family still didn't escape the residential school system, you know, that was promised, even if, you know, my cookum didn't live on reserve, you know, and those impacts are felt very broadly, not being, you know, able to call a specific area of land your home, even though I consider all of these territories and to Jasper, the traditional territories of my, you know, my ancestors, you know, it creates a deep um, displacement and confusion. A lot of this, this history was pretty snuffed out, right? And um, I didn't even find out that we were Michelle, you know, until several years ago, you know, because of that, you know, because of the impacts of a simulation, but you know, there are so many different impacts in general, like our people didn't prosper, our lands were sold off. And, um, you know, we were just kind of thrown out in our own territories. <laughs> you know, some people may say, you know, made beggars in our own territories and just made do to, you know, to 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 survive on the on the remnants of what was left of us. But uh, I'm just really happy now that I know more about my roots and I know about the truths of what happened and and reclaiming that and reconnecting uh, to all of that. And I believe, you know, it was the prayers of my cookum and my other ancestors that that would come back to us and it is coming back to us. And I'm just really happy to see it happening. But your cookum, your grandmother, in your in you in your new memoir, Voices of Fire, it's obvious that she was a huge larger than life figure in your childhood, in your family. Tell me a little bit about her and 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 the gifts that she gave you and and the demons that she wrestled with. Yeah. So I was very close with my cookum. She passed away in two thousand and eight. She was seventy four years old. She passed away of cancer, and uh, I spent a lot of time. Uh, at her home growing up and living with her for different periods of time. I, you know, came from a very dysfunctional family, mostly on um, that side of my family, the maternal side. My cookum, uh, her father and sister both died of tuberculosis, which is a real epidemic for, especially for Indigenous people 
um, across the country and uh, she was forced to attend a residential school after the after that uh, just in St. Albert and her family was completely broken apart her her mother ended up falling into alcoholism with her new stepfather and you know this this big cycle of addictions and 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 violence began and so my cookum ended up having um nine children within about a 12 year period and uh, her marriage broke down and she succumbed to uh you know alcoholism and violence and uh, lived in in poverty her her children which my mom and my aunts and uncles were witness to poverty and violence and even the child welfare system for a period of time but you know when my cookum was older we were able to form a really close bonded relationship that she necessarily didn't have with her own children yeah. uh, it was almost like maybe she was making up for lost time and so we grew you know very close and i understood my indigeneity um by being with her except i didn't really understand a whole lot of it i was exposed to you know the the alcohol the violence and the bingo and making bannock and a little bit of cree language here and there i didn't understand all the context i didn't understand the whys as to what you know why we were so broken as a family um but i know that her prayers again her prayers were really powerful that uh you know one day we would come back you know to our own and she ended up coming back to her own on her deathbed in in my book she had lost most of her cree language as a child but on her deathbed my mother told me that she called all her children into the room at the hospital and i wasn't there at the time and uh suddenly she began speaking cree fluently and she was speaking blessings over all of her children and so it was like her last breath uh she she came back into her own and i feel very empowered by that and and blessed by that and so that motivates me to do the work that i'm doing now it sounds as though i mean from talking to you today and also from reading the book that you didn't grow up with a strong sense of pride in your indigenous roots that it was something i don't know if it was hidden or something that just wasn't celebrated i mean did you grow up feeling like a I first nation yeah person? yeah like i was always proud to be native i wasn't really rooted in in land or i didn't grow up on you know reserve i was always so very proud you know and knew that we were native but i also knew that native people were broken and that we struggled and i'm not saying you know that to be generalized for everyone but in many cases that is that way but my cookum was always so proud to be native and she made uh you know her children proud to be that way and her grandchildren so it wasn't hidden i the history was hidden i didn't even know i didn't even know cookum attended a residential school until after she died she would refer to it as a convent i didn't know what that was i just thought it was just a you know a convent that she you know went to i didn't understand the violence of colonization i didn't understand all of these things and the beauty of what was taken from us you know the beauty of who we are in relation to these lands and to our rights and so it was that kind of thing from reading your memoir it's clear that you had a difficult childhood but also you were a difficult child <laughs> uh, there was a lot of acting out that you described i mean you're very brutally honest about some of your own behaviors yeah the defiance processing all of this as you write the memoir i'm sure is not easy but you know as you as you look back why do you think you were so angry why were you why were you lashing out so fiercely 
Yeah. I mean, things at home were just out of control. My parents were, you know, their relationship was very toxic, very dysfunctional. There was um, fighting and physical and verbal abuse. And it, it was just a really insecure and in unstable environment. So as a child, I was reacting to that environment. I was, you know, angry. I did become defiant. And my mom was dealing with so much, uh, you know, so much of the chaos and then trying to raise these four kids on her own while my dad would come and go. You know, I became too much for her, you know, it was what she told me. And she made the decision to, to put me into the care of the child welfare system. I can't imagine what it's like for you to sort of excavate that pain and to have those conversations with your mother now. I mean, it's one thing, the pain of having your child taken from you and placed into foster care. But your mom made the decision when mm -hmm. you were what? You were how old? You were around six or seven when I first. Yeah. You know, that she made the decision to put you into care. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you process that? For a long time, I just blamed completely myself. I grew up believing that there was something wrong with me that I was bad, you know, and it wasn't until years after that I understood the situation, you know, as a whole, and that I was a child and I was reacting to my environment. But um, my mom carries a ton of guilt. She didn't have the proper resources to help her in this situation that she was in, um, in her marriage and in her family. A lot of times the, the child welfare system focuses on you know, um, removing the kids from the home and not providing any sort of resources to the families yeah. who are struggling to keep their kids. And so none of that was made available, you know, to her. And it was always temporary. It was always like, you know, she needed relief. She needed help. And, and I just kept getting more and more out of control because, you know, I didn't have that, you know, sense of belonging or, or any sort of security. And, um, and it just turned into this cycle. It's painful. Yeah. I did way too many stories about kids who were abused, sometimes fatally in care. But that wasn't your experience. It was really when you got to sort of aged out of foster care and moved into the group yeah. setting that 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 it became much more problematic. Yeah, and I think and I'm and I'm so thankful for that. I think that I was blessed in that way. I was already going through different abuses and such at home, so I'm thankful that I didn't, you know, didn't have to experience that, uh, you know, in the foster care system as a child. I mean, we're going to get into some traumatic territory here. So you tell me if you're comfortable telling this story. Sure. You're in group homes. You're with older girls who are maybe not the best influences. And you're a runner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you are running away from care when you can, sometimes in the company of older girls who are, you know, as my mother would say, are not a good influence. I wondered if, if you're comfortable to tell me about the dark turn that that took for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I was um, curious and eager and getting into my adolescence and rebellious, but still pretty innocent. I came from mostly the rural areas out here, but I started getting placed in these group homes in the city and, you know, was very impressionable and um, just had that yearning, you know, to have that camaraderie and to belong. And so, yes, I did look up to these girls. Um, at one foster or at one group home called the Yellowhead Youth Center. I was at for quite a while. And uh, there was one night 
in the winter. Oh, what year would it have been if I would have been? It would have been 1992, I believe. And we were standing outside smoking and just decided to take off. And they, you know, said we were going to go party, go find some alcohol. And that's what we did. And so I was really excited. And they took us to downtown Edmonton. That's where we ran from because the group home was just not too far away on the north side. And they took us to, uh, these two girls took me to an apartment uh, downtown Edmonton. And what ended up happening was we were supposed to be going there to party and let loose together and just, you know, have some fun. And they took me to where these older men were that they knew. And I ended up being raped at 12 years old at that apartment. And I was still a virgin. So my virginity was ripped away from me. And I was uh, moved from that apartment to a different one on another side of the city and raped by another man um, throughout the week. I estimate I was gone for about five to seven days. I don't know exactly how long I was gone for. And I managed to get out of there and um, escape with my life. And I ran to my Kokum's house. That's where I went to. And, uh, she, you know, she welcomed me with open arms. And I had to go back to the group home. A couple of days later, I buried that trauma that I experienced after getting up the courage to tell a worker at this, um, you know, at this uh, facility what had happened to me. And she, you know, she said, you know, like, that's what happens when you take off. Don't do it again. And I had already been filled with so much guilt, you know, because I had run away and thinking it was my fault that uh, I, I took her words very literally. And I uh, buried that and didn't address it for years and years. And it, it, it just bubbled up in the form of more outrage and rebellion that, uh, you know, eventually landed me in uh, locked up in the Edmonton Young Offender Center and um, led me on a path to a lot of adversity. Yeah, that's the basis of that. You know, you you start the memoir by talking about all the work you did on stories about missing and murdered Indigenous women and being suddenly hit in the middle of your reporting work for, you know, working for, working with the New York Times, how close you came to being one of those statistics, how close you came that week when you were a 12-year-old child kidnapped confined, repeatedly raped. How is it that we have created a culture in which Indigenous girls are treated as so disposable? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, when, like I said, in, in like I write in my memoir, when, you know, I've done a lot of different coverage on missing and murdered and about the oppression of, you know, Indigenous peoples uh, here, you know, in, in North America. But when I was in the home where Tina Fontaine was raised, speaking with her auntie, uh, seeing Tina's photos on the walls, I saw myself on the walls and just deeply realized that, you know, I could have been her and also that she could have been me. Who would she be in this world? Yeah. What, what would she be doing? And I knew that I had this huge responsibility, even more so, to tell my story, to use the power that I have as a journalist, you know. And so I, I seen the way that our women were being portrayed 
to where that that even you know like tina fontaine her murder woke this country up to the severity of this crisis you know because her face was a child like she was a child and it took that to shake this nation up enough because uh you know our women are are seen as runaways or drunks or deserving and and we don't have that value given to us and here i am now doing you know award-winning journalism bringing these stories you know to the world and understanding that i almost didn't make it and that we 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 have so so much work to do but we've gotten you know our our women you know have been portrayed you know in in the media as undeserving and the police don't investigate our stories like they should they don't investigate you know these cases and it's all stems back it's all related to the violence of colonialism it's all related to the residential school system and the 60s scoop and the injustices that continue to happen and it's all related to people not understanding those truths and not understanding the truths of our history as a colonial country that violently took these lands and resources and oppressed the peoples of these lands and that these impacts are playing out today. That was part one of my conversation with award-winning Alberta journalist Brandi Morin. In part two, we'll discuss her most recent work as a reporter covering everything from the Pope's visit to the past and future of Wood Buffalo National Park. You will not want to miss it. Brandy's new book, Our Voice of Fire, A Memoir of a Warrior Rising, has just been released by the House of Anansi Press. You won't want to miss it either. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Paula Simons. Thanks for listening. Merci and hi hi.